If you're like one-fourth of adult Americans, you have been on a low-carb diet, like the keto diet. The low-carb diet story started with a successful self-published book called Letter on Corpulence Addressed to the Public, written way back in 1863 by a coffin maker and undertaker named William Banting. Banting, at five foot five inches, but weighing in at over 202 pounds, struggled to manage his weight for his 65 years of life. Like many of today's cereal dieters, Banting tried fasting, exercise, and even trips to the fat farms at times, but without much luck. But then Banting caught wind of a new low-carb diet, used by some doctors as a treatment for diabetes. Banting didn't have diabetes, but he thought he might try it out for himself, writing, quote, The items from which I was advised to abstain as much as possible were bread, butter, milk, sugar, beer, and potatoes, which had been the main, and I thought innocent, elements of my existence. And it turned out this coffin maker had stumbled across his first successful weight loss program. He lost a pound a week for a year and maintained that weight loss until he died 15 years later. His program consisted of four meals a day with meat, greens, fruits, and dry wine. Mainly it's what he avoided that made the difference. No sugar, no sweets, no potatoes, no oats, no beer, and no butter. After a year of excellent weight loss results, he did what so many self-styled influencers do to this day. He self-published a book about his newfound dietary success. To his surprise, his self-published book was so popular that it was picked up by a standard publisher. Every self-published author's dream. Today, you can still buy Banting's book. And yes, I'll have a link in the show notes. It is from Banting's diet that came many others. Its children and grandchildren, of diets that is, are the Stillman diet, the Atkins diet, the Paleo diet, the Whole30 diet, the Carnivore diet, and the current rage, the Keto diet. Though each have their own twist, all of these diets preach the same concept. Decrease the amount of carbohydrates, sugars, and starches you put into your body, Eat copious amounts of meat, using fat as fuel, and you can't help but lose weight. Best of all, you won't be hungry. At least, that is what the purveyors of the low-carb diets will tell you. Today our conversation is about low-carb diets with a focus on the keto diet. And keto will learn like most food fads, has a fun combination of fact and food cons. My name is Dr. Terry Simpson, and this is Culinary Medicine, where we sort out the crazy from credible about food, from its source to its effect on your body, busting myths, and showing evidence where food can be medicine. The, the challenge with folks who say things like, 
you're okay eating all the salt you want, or you should be eating only 10% of your calories from fat. You should be on a complete vegan diet. You should be eating higher carbohydrates as a result of that lower fat, or the opposite of that, which is old style Atkins, ketogenic, because it's all the same. Atkins, you know, South Beach was son of Atkins. Ketogenic is son of South Beach. You know, they're all the same diet, basically with a little bit different, maybe a little different twist. But, you know, this concept of either a very low-carb diet or a very high-carb diet, you know, it's just quackery. That is a friend of culinary medicine, Dr. Timothy Harlan, physician at Tulane University and a chef. He's also a manager of the Culinary Medicine Project. It's through his efforts that culinary medicine is taught in medical schools throughout the country. In his view, and in the view of many, low-carb diets are not sustainable. Not that you can't lose weight. You probably will, at least initially. Well, the ketogenic diet, it works for a lot of people. If we talk about the low-hanging fruit and the ketogenic diet, I think that when somebody's trying to you know, use this diet to lose weight, one of the easiest things that happens is by cutting out all the carbohydrates, most junk food is based on carbohydrates. So when you eliminate all the carbohydrates, you basically eliminate a lot of junk food. You know, if you stop drinking regular soda, and that's, you know, 500 calories or whatever per day of, of soda, you, the appetite doesn't seem to want to reclaim those 500 calories somewhere else. So it sort of automatically puts you into this energy deficit, which allows for weight loss. That happening in an ad libitum or, you know, just not counting calories, when that happens automatically, I think that sort of leads to sustainability in that aspect. That would be uh, one of the positive aspects of the ketogenic diet. One of the negative aspects of it is just adherence is not very high in the literature. And I believe that's due to, it's a pretty restrictive diet. It takes away a lot of foods that people have grown up eating. Some more nuanced things is if you're eating a high fat diet, which some ketogenic diets are, you could be eating too many omega-6 fatty acids, which in the long run might not do you too well. I mean, it's arguable. I don't know what's worse, a diet high in sugar or a diet high in omega-6 fatty acids. Uh, ideally, you would be lower in both. I guess the take-home of this nuance would be uh, it requires a certain degree of nutritional awareness. That is Bill Agakos. His best-selling book, The Poor Misunderstood Calorie, is one of the better and well-referenced books about the biochemistry behind how your body treats different types of calories in different ways. Here's what we know about low-carb diets, information gathered from multiple studies. People do lose weight on low-carb diets. It's a legitimate way to lose weight. Restricting calories from carbohydrates, much like Banting did, to between 5 and 30% of your daily caloric intake will cause noticeable weight loss in most, but not all, people. This restriction isn't limited to highly refined carbohydrates like white sugar and white flour, but also to carbohydrates that naturally occur in healthy foods, such as whole grains, fruits, and even legumes. What's wrong with fruits or whole grains, you might ask? 
As it turns out, there is nothing wrong with fruits or whole grains. Studies have very, very clear that both fruits and whole grains are a part of a healthy diet, a healthy way of living. But for most low-carb diets, those food groups are foreboding. Do people live longer on a keto diet? Well, that might be an issue. In a recent study of over 15,000 people that was recently published in The Lancet, those who ate a moderate amount of carbs, meaning 50 to 55% of their daily intake, lived an average of four years longer than those on a low-carb diet. That is, those who ate less than 30% of their total calories and carbs. What about the in-between amount? Like 40%. They gained an extra two years. But still, more moderate carbohydrates correlated with two more years of life than that. So just how do low-carb diets work anyway? The adherents to the keto and other low-carb diets claim insulin is the key to this diet. On this diet, you want to have low levels of insulin. Why? Insulin is a storage hormone. Too much blood sugar, and insulin stores it as glycogen. Not fat, glycogen. But if you have too much dietary fat, insulin will also store that as fat. That perfect combination of sugar and fat, we call it the donut. Or how Sylvester Stallone managed to gain 40 pounds in a month. On this diet, you can eat foods like meat, fish, and fats, and the body will start to burn fat for fuel. Insulin not only stores dietary fat, but it also turns off fat burning. The word keto, by the way, refers to ketones. Ketones are a byproduct of burning fat. If you lose weight on any diet, you will be burning fat, which in turn produces ketones. A patient came into my office recently. He had gained some weight, so I asked him about his eating habits. He said he ruined his diet by having a slice of bread with his meal, a meal that consisted of one porterhouse steak, 1,500 calories, one wedge salad with blue cheese and bacon, 500 calories, lobster bisque, 260 calories, and the 90 calories from that slice of bread. That's 2,350 calories. But it was the bread, my patient contended, that put his body out of ketosis. I'm skeptical, as you should be, because math. But there's much more going on here. Eating that bread added a new taste to his mouth, one he hadn't had for a while. Do that, and you will eat more steak, which has more calories. No matter what a low-carb aficionado will tell you, calories still matter. Another example of bringing in a new taste is this. Did you ever remember Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor and they had something called the Zoo? The idea was that if you could eat those 10 plus scoops of ice cream, you didn't have to pay for it. How do you eat that? Well, you really can't. Too many sweets. Your palate gets fatigued from them. But... If you eat a saltine cracker between the scoops, 
a new taste in your mouth, and you can easily eat more. Let's bring that back to low-carb diets, a new taste. It changes your mind about the food you're currently eating. How does that relate? Well, if a steak-only diet starts to be boring to your taste buds, it's actually boring to your brain. You eat less. How many of you who were on the low-carb diet said, Oh no, steak again? But add a bit of sweet, and your now stimulated taste buds, and again, brain, will reward you with a bit of dopamine, and you will eat more at that very moment. Also, that 90-calorie side of bread did spike his insulin a bit. In turn, that insulin caused the body to store more of those calories as fat, not just the calories from bread, mind you, but even from the calories in the meat and the fat in the steak, you know, that meat and fat. The keto pushers would have you believe would not cause you weight gain. But when you ingest food with high caloric density like fat, in the presence of insulin, your body will store those fat calories. There are fringe elements of the low-carb movement, and not surprising, there's a large amount of salesmanship on the woo side of this diet. There's a lot of money to be made selling you low-carb products from their own branded cauliflower pizza crust to coffee beans specially selected for you to put butter in. That's a good way to ruin a cup of coffee. I prefer cream. And when it comes to coffee, I like Major Dickinson's from Pete's. They don't sponsor me. I sponsor them. What gives Major Dickinson's blend its distinctive flavor? The finest beans. Carefully selected from the world's premier growing regions. Hand-roasted and artfully blended for an impeccably balanced, exceedingly smooth cup. Rich. Complex. The blend that transcends the sum of its parts. Of course, if you go all in on the keto diet, you can buy an expensive breath analyzer to confirm that you are in perfect ketosis. Or you could ask your significant other if your breath smells bad. If that sounds gross to you, you can use the not inexpensive urine strips to test for ketones. Nothing like peeing daily on a strip, first thing in the morning, just to keep you on your diet, right? I'm really amazed people pay for these things. But the Wusai doesn't just stop with bodily fluids. Some keto believers will tell you that the keto diet is good for the brain. This statement likely comes from the use of the diet in the 1920s where it decreased epileptic seizures among certain children's types of epilepsy. But that's been almost 100 years, and we have much better drugs for seizure control than a low-carb diet. It is rare that a neurologist would recommend a low-carb diet as therapy. Even fringier advocates will try and convince you that this diet will cure brain cancer. It doesn't. Or that the keto diet will prevent dementia. It doesn't. Or that it's a potential treatment for all cancers because cancer cells only consume sugar and not ketones. That is also not true. And cancer cells grow quite well in beta-hydroxybutyric acid and acetones, or, as they're commonly known, ketones. Here's a fun fact. Cancer cells will actually outgrow normal human cells in a ketotic environment. Yes, cancer cells eat both sugar and ketones, even 
better than normal cells. Cancer sucks. If you were paying attention in the 1990s, you might have read about the paleo diet. It's another low-carbohydrate type of diet, one that tries to twist you into believing that, quote, this is the way humans were meant to eat, unquote. Yes, eat like those cavemen who died at age 35. Statement like this are a logical fallacy called a biotruth. A biotruth is something that's presented as an inescapable truth of biology or evolution. And almost every diet uses the biotruth logical fallacy when describing their diet as the one way that human beings were meant to eat. Radical vegans will show you drawings of teeth in the digestive system as evidence of their biotruth claims. Funny that paleotypes use the same drawings. Hmm. But science has proven the assumption of both paleo diet fans and radical vegans were wrong. Paleo eaters contend that humans didn't eat grains or legumes before 10,000 years ago, and therefore we have not evolved to eat this way, or so they say. In fact, paleo diet claim, we were meant to eat mostly meat. Hence, the carnivore diet. But when you toss out their drawings and look at the actual data from teeth found in archaeologic digs in Africa, you will see that our ancestors were eating plenty of starches, legumes, and a lot of notably non-meat foodstuff well over 150,000 years ago. Things that paleo diet people say we should not eat because our ancestors didn't eat. Well, it turns out those foods have actually been in our diet longer than paleo people imagine. In reality, humans can eat a wide variety of foods. At times in our evolutionary past, some foods were plentiful, while other foods were scarce. Natural selection enabled early humans to survive on changes because we had a backup plan. Our teeth, as it turns out, can cut through flesh just as well as they can grind nuts, beans, and plants to sustain us. The logical fallacy paleo people fall prey to, the incorrect assumption that people are meant to eat this way, is the same logical fallacy radical vegans also use. The fact is, humans evolved to eat almost anything, in almost any environment. We are adaptable. People in ancient Peru ate mostly vegetarian diets. My Eskimo cousins ate mostly fat and meats from various walrus and caribou. If you ever want to see a fight on the internet, it's between vegans and paleotypes, both touting their bio-truth logical fallacies. I need to take a moment to mention that for some individuals, a high-fat or high-protein diet is contraindicated, meaning please beware. You know the warning I give at the end of the episode about talking to a doctor before venturing on a diet? Well, if you have liver disease, kidney disease, some forms of diabetes, or if you had your gallbladder removed, low-carb is not a diet plan for you. And watch out for claims that your blood tests will get better on low-carb diets like the keto diet. Changes such as these are not necessarily predictive of disease or disease-free states in the long term. Almost any diet, from low-carb to high-carb, 
will show improvements in all sorts of blood tests like lipids, cholesterol, and other markers in the bloods as you lose weight. Much like our episode about our made-up beer and sausage diet showed, any weight loss is likely to show improvement in your blood markers of heart disease. Losing weight is good for you. Keeping that weight off is even better. We don't have many long-term studies beyond five years that affirm the long-term value of low-carb diets. The only diet that has good long-term diet is a Mediterranean diet. And as you know from our Season 1 episode of the same name, the Mediterranean diet is not low-carb. But I do applaud those who wish to take better control of your health and if you start a low-carb diet and find success of it. Oh, and back to William Banting, our coffin maker the guy who started the low-carb diet revolution based on the doctors of his day who were trying this diet as a tool against diabetes. William Banting died before a cousin of his was born in Canada. That distant cousin, Frederick Banting, would, in 1920, be one of the first people to isolate insulin. In 1922, he would begin to treat patients with insulin. For diabetics, this was a miracle. And while low-carb diets may have kept some diabetics alive a few months longer than expected, insulin allowed them to live a normal lifespan. Frederick Banting would go on to win the Nobel Prize in 1923, and he is still the youngest to have won that award. The coincidence that Frederick would win the prize for a disease whose only treatment at the time was diet, a diet his distant cousin had found some success with losing weight, insulin. That is the true wonder of science-based medicine. All diets for weight loss work. But the real concern in the recent study showing a decrease in lifespan for those who adhere to a lower-carbohydrate diet, well, that's worrisome. The second concern is can you sustain the diet? Like most diets for weight loss, most can't sustain it. And sadly, many who have been on this diet are left with the impression that calorie-dense food, like meats or fats, are diet food. They are not diet food. They are calorie-rich and nutrient-dense foods. The good part of this diet is, and every nutritionist and every person trained in culinary medicine in every low-carb enthusiast will agree, that people should decrease junk food especially highly refined carbohydrates like chips and sodas, cookies, and most sweets. But there is a reason that the low-carb diets aren't among the top choices of nutritionists or most nutritionists today. Even if you look at the most recommended diet list, like the one put out by U.S. News and World Report, you'll see that low-carb diets fall to the bottom of those lists. That's because the vast majority of nutritionists and doctors and studies show that optimum health is tied to a diet rich in what is sometimes called complex carbohydrates. Food like fruits, root vegetables like carrots, legumes like beans and lentils. Those foods are not encouraged by many low-carb or keto diets. And the majority of nutritionists, except the vegan-centric or, as they call themselves, plant-strong ones, know that fish, poultry, and meats are important items in a healthy diet. Fish is an abundant source of omega-3 fatty acids which decrease risk of heart disease and strokes. 
Meat's a great source of nutrients, including vitamins. So how do you lose weight and keep it off? The answer is changing your lifestyle to one that you can sustain. And it often involves eating a diet that's rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes. That may be one of the reasons that most nutritionists score low-carbon keto diets at the bottom of the pack. On a scale of 1 to 5, where 1 is all con and 5 is perfect science, low-carb diets are mostly a 3. Special thanks to Timothy Harlan and Bill Lagakos for lending their comments to today's shows. And of course, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Culinary Medicine with me, Dr. Terry Simpson. Here we go. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor, and you should always seek the advice of a trusted licensed medical provider with experience in your particular condition or concern before taking any action, especially before taking on a diet, because some diets may not be good for your condition. Culinary Medicine is a part of the Your Doctor's Orders Networks and is produced and distributed by our friends at Simpler Media. My producer is the talented and now meat-eating producer girl from Producer Girl Productions. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Dr. Terry Simpson. That's Dr. Terry Simpson. And I'll be back next time when we'll have another conversation about food as medicine or unveil another food con. Until then, don't drink the water, drink the wine. Hey, Evo, even Banting drink wine. So it can't be all bad, right? Cheers.